Welcome to the Hybrid Pub Scout Podcast, where we're mapping the publishing frontier with stories of publishing past, conversations with publishing professionals of today, and peeks into publishing's future. I'm Emily Einelander, and today's guest host, author, and librarian extraordinaire, Chris Curran, joins us once more to discuss some very light subject matter. Hi, Chris. Hi, Emily. <laughs> what what are we talking about today? Oh, we are talking about anthropodermic bibliopagy. <laughs> anthropodermic bibliopagy. So many syllables, so many <laughs> Greek words coming together to talk <laughs> or to to describe the practice of binding books with human skin, uh... which. Disgusting. was actually a thing. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> In this two-part episode, we will talk about how researchers determine which books are made from human skin, who bound the books, whose skin was used, and the stated and subtextual justifications for the practice. So as with our Malleus Maleficarum episode, we soon discovered uh, that this topic was, was more than just a historical curiosity. We wanted to approach uh, the subject with uh, sensitivity to uh, the power dynamics and our own historical heritage, um, heritage of colonizers. Yep. So let me just uh, throw out some content warnings before we get started. Corpse violation, obviously. Medical ethics violations. Abuse of power. Objectifying the human body, obviously. Uh, colonialism, uh, racism, misogyny. And we're going to say some swears also. And, but if we're going to swear, it's going to be, it's going to be about something like this. If anything ever justified some superlative expletives, it's going to be this. (laughs) It's going to be the most what the fuck thing in books. Uh, What are our main sources today, Chris? So our, our main source um, for this episode is going to be the book Dark Archives by Megan Rosenblum. Uh, as as well as a few related interviews and features, including an episode of the podcast Ologies with Ali Ward, where Rosenblum and analytical chemist and fellow researcher Dr. Daniel Kirby go into more detail um, about their work. Speaking for Emily and myself, neither of us have uh, real scientific backgrounds, yeah. and it's it's going to get a little chemical all yes. up in here. Um, we're going to front so, load with that. So um, we're going to get all that stuff out of the way before we get well, more into the uh, the uh, ethical things that we probably also shouldn't be talking about, but are going to. Less catecology, more Foucault. <laughs> uh, so Chris, uh, what what is the first thing you think of when uh, I say books made with human skin? The first thing that pops into my head is no, no, that's not a thing. That's, that's sensational nonsense from like the 19th century. That's some, that's some Penny Dreadful, Sweeney Todd type shit. Uh, (laughs) And then, you know, you delve, like you spend two seconds on Google and you discover, nope, this was a thing. Uh, And well, well, now my curiosity has peaked. A thing for fancy people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> A thing for fancy lads. 
<laughs> with oh. disposable incomes and large libraries. And some serious uh, uh, detachment from, from human life. <laughs> I gotta How say- How about you? Oh, I mean, like uh, this is a this is an aside, but I I do some writing for a uh, Jack the Ripper website. Um, I don't know if we've yes. ever talked about this, but I've been doing it for years. We have, yes. <laughs> but I always, you know, with with the research, you know, obviously amateur research that I've done, I was always kind of like, why do these people think that it was a doctor? It obviously wasn't a doctor. And reading about <laughs> this subject that we are discussing today has made me realize, oh, no wonder everyone thought he was a doctor. Like doctors are ridiculous. Especially in this time period. Yes, uh, absolutely. And this is even a little bit later in the time period. Um, like the, what they're discussing here began in the 1700s almost, or mm -hmm. I mean, just to start with, but you know, more, more so in the 1800s and um, but yeah, I immediately am just like Leatherface, Ed Gein, fucking uh, Nazi exploitation comic books. Uh, but for the record, they don't have any books in the collection that were owned by uh, Nazis or made by Nazis. That was something that they are very quick to point out at the very beginning of the book or any resources that you look at is like, none of these are from Nazis. So far, we have not discovered any of those, which cold comfort, but okay. Um, the second thing I think about is the Necronomicon in Evil Dead, um, in the Evil Dead trilogy. But specifically, as I was thinking that and reading the introduction, Rosenblum calls out the Necronomicon from Evil Dead and says, most anthropodermic books don't announce themselves with a ghoulish appearance. Although I was researching this on Atlas Obscura and they had a picture of the book in question, one of the books that we will discuss today. And it looked pretty fucking ghoulish to me. I don't know. It looks like, it looks like a person's skin. <laughs> like you, I don't know, that, at least to me, it looks like a dead person's skin. That, that particular book stands out. It definitely does from all of these other confirmed books. That one stands out as looking kind of like what you would, kind of like what you would expect. Um, the other ones just kind of look like antiquarian books. Yeah. Which again, yeah, if you're, if you're expecting, or if, if you hear about human skin books, you expect a, a, a certain um, number of pentagrams and, and other <laughs> such things um, and, and devil faces and whatever on, on the cover, but no, no, they look like books. I mean, banality of evil and whatnot, not to take oh. it back to the Nazis. So anthropodermic biocodicology is the study of biological information stored in manuscripts. Um, that field of study looks to expand the, the field of codicology to include biomolecular techniques of proteomics and genomics. Codicology is the study of books and parchments, easy, code, codex, books. Proteomics is the study and analysis of proteins, also easy, right? And genomics is the study of genes. So, yeah. Uh -huh. It's so far so good. <laughs> when you when we look at word origins in terms of of scientific fields of study, I always feel smart, and that's that's 
usually where it ends. Um, so the leading scientist involved in this research is Dr. Daniel Kirby, who I think we mentioned earlier. Um, he worked with some drug companies and he worked at IBM and then he took a took a bike tour of the world because he got bored of his job. And then um, he started volunteering at the Harvard Art Museum. Um, and at that point, people who were working in archaeology had already started doing protein analysis um, with bones and other artifacts. And he was like, we should just do it with books. Um, so he started applying some of those same techniques to books at Harvard, who the librarians wanted to test. And it sounds like it kind of just evolved organically into this, hey, why don't you test this book that everybody's been saying is human skin? Um, and you can get a sample like smaller than I think your finger, like the very tip of your fingernail or your hair or something. Well, the, so the um, anthropodermic book project for whom uh, the author um, Rosenblum works has a picture of a sample and they put it up next to a penny. And if you, if you look at the reverse side of the penny that has the, the Lincoln monument on it, the size of the sample is roughly the same size as Lincoln's head in the monument, not, not the front facing coin, uh, side of the coin, but this oh, minuscule. The teeny, yeah, the teeny yeah, chair this, guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Minuscule piece of material. So yeah, it is infinitesimally small. Which is, um, it is good if you're talking to special collections librarians because <laughs> the heart attacks. <laughs> Exactly. That's why I fixated on the size of the, uh, on, on the sample size, just because it's so tiny. Um, it's a minimally invasive procedure. So the method that they use is called PMF, which stands for peptide mass fingerprinting. Leather maintains some of that collagen even after it's treated. So the proteins are made up of amino acid strings. So these strings have different types of proteins. Um, so they cut up the protein and they use spectromic analysis to see how big the different masses that make up the string are. And that's how they tell the difference. They just compare them to other reference samples that they have. Um, so by using the special tools to look at these cut up proteins, they can compare them to collagen from different types of mammals to see if a book is made of the skin of a 19th century lamb or a destitute human victim of yellow fever. It's, it's interesting to see, that, total aside, but it's interesting to see that some um, pathologies are preserved in the skin samples. Um, you, you mentioned yellow fever. I just think that it's interesting um, how you know, certain pathologies can be preserved and, and preserved not only through the skinning process, but also the, also the tanning process, uh, which is such an invasive um, thing which to... we'll get into a little bit more yeah um, but don't shut off the podcast yet <laughs> <laughs> guys we're just getting into this <laughs> oh. so there were so many so many claims there are so many bizarre claims from that period of time of books being made with human skin but um what did what what means did they use to assert and or quote unquote prove that um, before this type of analysis was available? So originally, it, it involved microscopes, specifically putting the book 
under a microscope and looking, uh, looking specifically at the hair follicles on the, I'm going to call it leather. So it's, it's, it's thought uh, that human hair follicles have a distinct pattern uh, from other animals or, or even other primates. This, this can be problematic as over the years, the collagen in the skin can change and that can change these patterns. The pattern that, that most people seem to be looking for is kind of like a diamond shaped pattern versus like a triangular shaped pattern in the, um, in the skin. The, the diamond pattern is supposed to indicate, uh, according to some people, human skin or more generally primate skin, um, which in, in doing this, in doing this research, I had never heard, I, I hadn't come across a book being bound in like gorilla skin or anything or, or monkey skin or anything like that. Um, somebody proved me wrong. Um, not that I'm advocating this. I just thought that was interesting. Um, but the, uh, as, as the collagen and the skin can change over time, um, there's also the consideration, like I was saying earlier, about the, the tanning process um, itself can also al alter these um, diamond patterns, making, um, you know, what some might think is a diamond pattern, uh, make it look more like a triangle. And this can ultimately lead to, to the test being inconclusive or, or being uh, subject specifically to false positives. Um, as a result, this follicle test has been, has been deemed uh, less than reliable. Mm -hmm. Inadequate. Yes. Fortunately, things have changed. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. So, so why did people believe that certain books were made and bound from human skin? Oftentimes the, the, the claim uh, that a, that a given book was bound in human skin was often made um, by the owners of the specific books or by um, um, eventual owners of a specific book. Um, and oftentimes they would write in the margins or, or in the frontispiece of the, of the book itself, they would write um, these handwritten notes that would say, hey, this has been bound in human skin. It's interesting to think though, um, what, what this uh, tradition of writing in the books and claiming that these are human skin um, can say about a given culture at the time or something. So realizing that this is um, that this is a written claim, but um, and and that the study of history is the study of the written record, one could say that this is a historical source that the, that these marginalia um, are written sources and as such are viable. But digging a little bit closer. I would be more tempted to consider it as oral tradition. The question of, of historical fact and solid evidence versus, versus oral tradition, um, you know, is, a, is an important uh, distinction to be made. I was once speaking to a colleague about this and um, they asked, you know, well, shouldn't, when you're examining history, shouldn't you, shouldn't you take oral tradition and, and tradition just in general into account? How can you discard, you know, tradition when you're trying to understand the past? And, you know, I said, fair enough. But the study of history with a capital H is like science based on evidence. Um, and yes, an oral tradition can be evidence. Um, but let's, let's take an absurd 
example. So if you have census records claiming one thing, that should you know, be taken as higher quality evidence than say a rumor shared by a nosy neighbor, um, somebody living in a specific neighborhood, uh, and this nosy neighbor will say in an interview, well, so-and-so, my next door neighbor, used to have you know, an illegitimate child or something. That's kind of an oral tradition, isn't it? This also, lend, this also brings us into the topic of bias, which is a four-letter word among historians. So when you're thinking about these things, who, who, are you going to, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to necessarily speak about, say, a nosy or rely on the nosy neighbor with you know, a potential axe to grind? Or are you going to listen to a disinterested third party, such as a census taker? Um, so you take all of this evidence into account and you see kind of what comes out in your historical analysis. So, so no, oral tradition should not be ignored, but it should be balanced um, with the record. So back to the handwritten note, these notes found in margins, um, found in these purported human skin books. So who wrote these? We can't, we nowadays can't ignore the salacious, even, even titillating allure of the, of the transgressive um, when examining these reports. This book is bound in human skin, is a transgressive and, and thus kind of, I hesitate to use the word interesting, but an interesting allegation. It's a, it's a good, there I go in quotes again, it's a mm -hmm. good, albeit gross story, uh, which explains why the allegations kind of endure, doesn't it? Uh, despite any, any actual evidence to the contrary. Also, these allegedly bound books could be illustrative of the time and place that the allegation was made. You know, like I was saying earlier, so at the time, an alleged human skin book could fetch a higher price, um, says, uh, says Rosenblum, right, in, mm -hmm. in, in uh, the Dark Archives book, right? Um, financial gain is definitely an excellent motivation, but why would these books fetch a higher price in the first place? A couple of things come to mind. So in Georgian and Victorian England, it was not uncommon for rich people returning from a quote-unquote grand tour of exotic places, specifically um, like Egypt, to, to have these people come back to England and host parties and share stories and display trinkets from their travels. And then in even in more exclusive circles, some of these travelers would return with an actual mummy from <laughs> Egypt, oh, a, a full human corpse um, with them. Uh, and, and then they would, um, these rich people would create a spectacle by unwrapping a corpse in their private home ew to to well let's say the the delight of their guests this was you know so far removed granted these people were removed by these mummies by a couple thousand years um right. so maybe there's a certain amount of distance involved but also there's this kind of salacious idea right so oftentimes and this is where it gets even grosser the wrappings and even the human tissue from these mummies would be ground and made into oil paints. So the pre-Raphaelites, all of, all of those, you know, Rembrandt paintings, those dark browns, that's human tissue. Oh my God. That is human tissue. This, this paint is called um, mummy brown. Interesting. Um, interesting side note. So, so I, I recently read something on the, uh, by the Smithsonian Magazine, and then I, I, I just double-checked this just to make sure I got my date right. But mm -hmm. this practice of grinding up human mummies from Egypt 
didn't end until 1964. Ew. Oh my God. And why did it end? Because uh, someone, because someone said, that's fucked up. <laughs> no. no, no. That's what you would expect. <laughs> but apparently the one remaining paint company that continued to make these ran out. They ran, ran out, out of, of mummy. The, uh, they ran out of the raw material. Mummy's just got too expensive. And yeah, ex- exactly. Um, and then you, we start getting into like archaeological um, uh, malfeasance and everything. But but yeah, it was even interesting reading this article um, how a representative from this paint company said, you know, yeah, we might still have like an arm or a leg kind of stashed away, but do we still have like a full body? No, because we've run out. Oh um, God. So, how did so, I not know okay. this? So that's Mummy Brown, right? But the, the, the Victorian and the Georgian obsessions, obsession with mummies didn't end there. Well, didn't, um, didn't, didn't all of the, the, you know, the rich boy magic societies in England like use mummies as part of their like potions and their rituals and stuff like that as well? I mean, it's not in the audience. Yes, <laughs> yes. So that's like ingesting them, right? Yeah, yeah. Doctors or or um, not not pharmacists, apothecaries. Apothecaries would prescribe pills made from made from human beings in general, but specifically um, made from uh, made from mummies, made from ground up human tissue. There's a there's a book, um, and again, in researching all of this. Um, I ran across this book that I really want to read, Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians by, by, a, by a, a Durham uh, University lecturer named Richard Sugg. Sugg? S-U-G-G. I don't know how to pronounce Shug. his last name. Sugg? <laughs> no, yes. it's not um, um, Maybe you should go to your local library and find it. Hmm. I wonder... Wait, do libraries still exist? <laughs> no, they should okay, have a Netflix. A they should have a Netflix for those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. God, join the 21st century. Honestly, <sighs> let me wrap this up before I lo- completely lose my train of thought. Okay. Um, so here's so with all of this, here's a question. Here are several questions, really. So, so what does the existence of of these books bound in human skin say about Western civilization at this time? Uh, and what was so important about the human corpse that made it the target of consumption and violation? Why would 19th century Western people want to ingest this or make it into a book? There are a lot of answers to those specific questions. What about like changes in domestic culture at the time? What about the mechanization of war um, mm-hmm. seen, seen in the 19th century? The thing that's kind of hovering in my mind when we're talking about ingesting human corpses is that maybe we, uh, we're we doing something where we can tell ourselves that they're not human. Exactly. Granted, you and I are going to talk about this. A lot more. Yeah, we're... A lot more. There's, there's so much to unpack with this. Mm-hmm. But also... What can be said um, about the the implied existence of these books, these books that are written in human skin, made by these handwritten notes that we find in the marginalia? So 
even if a person did not actually violate a human corpse to make a book, why would one want to lie? Right. Yeah. Why, why would you brag about that? <laughs> exactly. So this suggests to me a certain prestige was added to these books, right? Um, so again, that's, that's when we start talking about the owning and objectifying human beings. Yeah. I, I have another thought though, as I was kind of going on my little diatribe there, um, a thought occurred, Western civilization kind of looks at the corpse and looks like corpse handling from kind of like a Judeo-Christian, not kind of, they co- it comes from a Judeo-Christian worldview and, and belief system, right? So with that said, there are other cultures in the world that practice, um, and I think even some that continue to practice funerary cannibalism as just part of dealing as part of their grief and part of their funerary practices, eating small pieces of the recently deceased as a means of of prolonging their life, so to speak. Um, I'm hardly an expert. That's an anthropological discussion uh, that I'm hardly qualified, but it is worth saying that from a cultural relativistic standpoint, people have practiced funerary cannibalism. I mean, spoiler alert, Cheryl Strayed did it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like there must be some kind of natural human impulse there when you're grieving, but that's grief. That's different than, uh, that's different from like, let's go dig up a dead body and then grind it into powder for paint. Right. That's different, right? What? What goes, I am a, I am a, a, a paint manufacturer living in 1750 and my brain goes, oh, look at this human corpse over here. I'm going to grind it up and make brown paint. If it's in the ground, it's going to be ground. That's, that's the what? paint maker's, uh, the paint maker's philosophy. Ugh. Um, so currently, um, the anthro epidermic book projects count uh, as they slowly and methodically and respectfully uh, test these books that have the claims of being bound in human skin. Um, Alleged anthropodermic books identified 50. That's that's what they got in the pipe there. Uh, Books tested or in process 31. Books confirmed as human 18 and books proven not to be human, 13. Let's also lay the groundwork by looking at a case of a person whose body was used for this purpose. Additional content warning as we continue. This gets um, much more uh, biological. While they can't track every single person who has had this done to them, marginalia ends up being a clue to make those discoveries and to follow those threads that you were referring to that adds credence and proof evidence to the uh, the oral traditions um if i can overgeneralize so um we're going to talk about a single instance of someone who could be tracked and who was able to be tracked because of the marginalia that they're um Gosh, what should we call it? Should we call it their uh, attacker, aggressor, violator? Um, the doctor. I mean, all of these words. 
Let's go with doctor. Yes. <laughs> let's just, let's be a little more dispassionate in the telling of the story. Um, so the, this doctor wrote in the margins of a collection of books they had bound in human skin, Mary L. Dash. So through some study, the uh, it was determined that it was referencing a woman named Mary Lynch. So um, she was a 28-year-old Irish tuberculosis patient um, in the 1860s. Uh, she lived at Philadelphia General Hospital, which was a hospital where orphans and poor people and mentally ill people were all basically dumped together to be uh, kept um, treated to. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) supposedly treated, but I don't know. So as she's there being extremely ill, her family would visit and would bring her ham sandwiches and those were uh, were in- contaminated with trichinosis, um, which is so sad because imagine your life sucks so bad and then the ham sandwich betrays you. And, and <laughs> so unfair. It's, it's the ham sandwich that does you win. Yeah, <laughs> of all the like, things. You're, you're surrounded by all this suffering, but it's, it's the act of kindness kindness and comfort yes yes it's your comfort object oh god ridiculous this poor woman um so seriously the uh, the the, poor family yeah i mean maybe they didn't know maybe they didn't find out oh oh i see what you're saying oh god i would hope not from what i understood from from what i read they um it was after the autopsy where it was discovered. Oh, um, and clearly, the uh, the doctor in question was not in very good communication with this woman's family. Fair enough. So chances enough. are they didn't know. Um. So John Stockton Huff was responsible for the autopsy. He did not know her in real life. This was the first time he was seeing her. Um. Her body. And he discovered as he was dissecting her, sorry guys, uh, worms, just lots and lots of worms all throughout her body. And um, he was very excited about it. And yeah, I know. Oh my God, I'm going to make myself throw up. Okay. (laughs) So he was so excited that he took the skin from her thighs and took them home with him. So this this is just... This is a, this is a human being. (laughs) Oh my God. So, so meanwhile, uh, he took these home with him all, you know, skipping, skipping about with his new findings and Mary was left to be dumped in a pauper's grave. So, um, yeah, but we never would have found out what her story was if he hadn't written her name in the marginalia of the, in the margin of the book. So let's talk about how they actually bound the books. Um, so the actual actual work was done at tanneries, but before that point, these doctors um, would be responsible for preserving the uh, the skins and drying them out and treating them before they brought it to the tannery. Sometimes this would last for years. So uh, in Doctor Huff's case, um, so they used lime to remove the hair and skin particles. 
and then used ammonia to pickle the um, pickle the skin. And he did this by storing uh, Mary's skin in a chamber pot underneath his bed and pissing on it. Because what's a great source of ammonia? I mean, it 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 worked. But imagine taking. How did he not go to? How did? How was he not a serial killer? <laughs> exactly. There's. There's just... so many points of failure. <laughs> in the in this whole progression, you just like put put her skin in the toilet for years, and then bring it to another person. Here you go. <laughs> you bring it to another person and say, "Here you go. Put this on a book." Oh, I know. I know. God. God, I am a lot more tired than I thought I would be. Um, I, I think talking, we can wrap up, Chris, if you would like to talk a little bit about the first book to be confirmed by the Anthropodermic Book Project as Bound in Human Skin, because I believe it acts as a good bridge for, uh, from talking about these disgusting processes to the ethical human debates around how to deal oh. with these uh, discoveries and the research. Oh, let's let's get into this one. Um, I don't know, man. I, I'm ready to get out of the other part. So, <laughs> seriously. Uh, so it was back in 2014 um, when when the news broke that that Dr. Kirby, who we were talking about earlier, um, had had verified uh, that Harvard um, Harvard University had an anthropodermic book. Um, it was from the 1880s, uh, called um, "De Destinée de l'âme," uh, French for on on the destinies of the soul. Um, and surprise, it was found in a French woman's skin, uh, they discovered. So the book itself was written, um, the text itself of the book was written by uh, Arsène Uzeye in, in the wake of his wife's death um, as, a, as a sort of poetic exploration of life and death and the soul, all that good stuff. All that um, French stuff. Yes, so French. Um, so, so, so he got, he got the skin, uh, from his doctor friend and he was elated, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, to be able to use a a woman's skin to bind this book. I think, um, it's interesting to, to read, uh, the inscription, the, the written inscription in, in the book, uh, in full. I found it online. Um, and so the, the inscription reads, quote, this book is bound in human skin parchment on which no ornament has been stamped to preserve its elegance. By looking carefully, you easily distinguish the pores of the skin. A book about the human soul deserved to have a human covering. I have kept this piece of human skin taken from the back of a woman. It is interesting to see the different aspects that change the skin according to the method of preparation to which it is subjected. Compare, for example, with the small volume I have in my library, uh, Sever Pineus de Virginitatis Notis, which is also bound in human skin, but tanned with sumac. Fetidization uh, <laughs> of objects. And, and objectification of, of people in general, but, but in this case, in, and in so many cases, women. Your, yes, your art is so important that it, a woman must be sacrificed for it. <laughs> also, just, you know, there's also the 
I don't know. My wife is dead. I am sad. Therefore, I will get another woman's skin to cover a book I wrote about her. Like, what? Right. And anyway, let's uh, let's talk about the uh, let's talk about the fallout a little bit of this uh, discovery being made and how it was yes. presented. <laughs> moving, moving right along. Um, the ability. Uh, so the ability to prove that this book was um, indeed bound in human skin was a it was a pretty big ba- breakthrough mm-hmm. um and another example of losing uh well losing the plot a little <laughs> bit <laughs> um, the headline that announced um the the findings of the test was a uh, can we call it glib <laughs> i think i um, think it's glib yeah one of them one of them said and and here comes another quote uh caveat lector lector spelled like uh like the like Hannibal Lecter. Doctor. <laughs> oh my um, God, like the... you're right. That wasn't on purpose. That couldn't have been on purpose. Maybe it was. Okay, uh, keep going. Sorry. Say <laughs> right. So, so caveat Lecter. Um, good news for fans of anthropodermic bibliopagy, bibliomaniacs, and cannibals alike. Fans good news? of anthropodermic bibliopagy. Fans. 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 <laughs> so, this announcement brought the the whole ethical debate into focus. Um, Princeton librarian, Dr. Paul Needham, uh, interesting guy, he's gonna, he's gonna show up more. Um, but this, uh, but Dr. Paul Needham in particular was adamant that the, that the book cover should be interred to respect the unnamed woman who was, um, who was according to him, uh, according to Dr. Needham, um, mutilated to fulfill this man's uh, psychosexual desires um, to fulfill um, Uzeye's psychosexual desires. Um, so that's that's where we come to the next part of this whole this whole subject, right? What is the right thing to do when these books are are confirmed to be bound in human skin? Who decides what is done with human remains, and 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 what plays into those decisions? There are some very interesting points made on both sides of this debate. I feel. So, Chris, <laughs> closing thoughts? I, I'm wiped. I'm wiped out. I'm gonna go drink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I think I need to go on a long, anxious walk to, <laughs> to, to cleanse myself of all of this. An anxious walk. Okay, well... You can find us at hybridpubscout.com on Facebook and Twitter at hybridpubscout and on Instagram at hybridpubscoutpod. Thanks for hanging in there with us and we hope to see you back here next time.